You're listening to The Recovery, a series of conversations about rediscovering the ancient faith in order to reclaim our own. Welcome to the show. I hope this finds you well, as always. Had some interesting conversations over the weekend. Um, was discussing with um, some folks who belong to the SBC, the Southern Baptist Convention, um, in Louisville, um, where Southern Baptist Seminary is. And we were talking at some point in the conversation about um, some of the issues that I have with uh, a lot of SBC churches, but not simply them, a lot of non-denominational churches, um, you know, Pentecostal apostolic churches, uh, mo- what we call like, I guess, modern churches or churches that have come up in the last few hundred years. Um, and that is that in large measure, they are disconnected from the historic church. And when I said that, I don't think uh, it quite registered because the response was, well, yeah, that's true for a lot of maybe Southern Baptist churches outside of Louisville or the areas of the seminaries, but particularly in Louisville where that seminary sits, um, the, you know, there's a lot more focus on the historic nature of the Baptist church. And uh, by that, as, as the conversation went on, they meant uh, going back to the Westminster Confession, particularly in the Reformed part of the, the Baptist church, um, going back, you know, 500 years. And they would recite parts of confessions and even to some extent, some of the, the creeds, the Nicene, the Apostolic Creed. But, you know, I said, you know, like going back to the Reformers, going back 500 years uh, where you kind of root your theology is is not far enough. You got to go back farther than that. Um, and and the response was, well, how do you go back farther than your, your church started? Which in large measure kind of proves the point, right? Like if you think your church started at the Reformation in the 1500s, and that's as far as you go back, you, you're, you've just, uh, you just stated that you don't think your church is connected to the historic church that goes back through the medieval uh, ages, back through the early church, um, and, and you don't see yourself as part of this uh, Catholic with a small c, universal church, that there is one church, it's God's church, and we're all part of it. Um, and then the problem comes when we uh, don't recognize that and we don't pay attention to uh, the history that has brought us to the point where we are. We don't understand why we are where we are, uh, how we got here, what the development of thought was, um, how God's people have been talking and thinking for now 2,000 years as Christians and thousands of years before that as uh, the nation of Israel. Um, and you, you just can't pick up a couple hundred years ago uh, maybe even as little as 100 years ago, if we talk about sort of a non-denominational evangelical church in America, uh, that tradition, you know, is 100, 150 years old. Um, and, and then, you know, a few hundred years, maybe as much as 500 years if you're in a Reformed church and just ignore everything that came before it. Uh, and that doesn't mean you have to agree with everything that comes before it, but we have to understand uh, what they were saying, what they meant, what came before them, all the way back, particularly to that first century, which we've talked about. Um, and so this isn't necessarily an argument for the Catholic Church, the Big C Catholic Church, the Holy Roman Catholic Church, um, which would argue that you have to be part of that church and sit in that tradition to be properly part of the church. Um, I, I don't believe that for a minute. Um, but you need to know how you got where you are, because if you don't, 
um, you run the risk of missing much of the meaning of the text and what God was saying, what the early church was saying, um, and ultimately you end up misunderstanding the church and misunderstanding the text, um, and 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 you get it wrong as a result. It's not just that you miss some of it; you actually get a lot of it wrong. And this is why, you know, again, with the name of this podcast, The Recovery, this is exactly the, pro- the project. We're trying to peel back uh, the layers of, of history and understanding uh, because it's, it's not good enough just to go back 100 years or, you know, in, in my case, I sit in a church that's 200 years old. Like if, 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 if I said, hey, you know, that's as far back as we need to go, well, we're, we're missing 1,800 years of church history and thought development. And, you know, we, we don't talk about Augustine or... Um, you know, Tertullian or, you know, any, you know, Eusebius or any of these early church fathers that were so inf- uh, influ- influential. Um, so what, what are we talking about really? Like, how does this actually play out? We're going to talk about two examples today. And they both come uh, particularly from Romans, which is a notoriously difficult text. So I just want to acknowledge that. And what we're getting ready to say uh, clearly is uh, controversial. It's in some ways that's the point, right? It's controversial because we have uh, a part of the church that wants to go back only 500 years to the Reformation, and there are others of us that want to go back not only to uh, the first century when Paul was writing, but also all the way back in the Old Testament and look at uh, these words and how they were used and, and what the Bible actually says about these words. Um, and it comes becomes actually kind of ironic in some ways. Uh, what I'm about to present is, is an argument that uh, takes the Bible seriously. Let the Bible define the terms. Um, and what we're going to see is that the reformers who uh, say sola scriptura, only the you know, scripture alone, um, un- ironically, again, um, are using uh, 16th, 17th century legal lens and terminology in order to interpret and define terms. Um so they're not actually using the Bible to define the terms, right? And that's that's the that's the point. Okay, that's the point. All right. So let's jump into it. Uh, the first one we want to talk about is the Greek word uh, dikaiosune, which means uh, justice, justification, righteousness. So if you are reading your Bible, your New Testament, and you come across any of those three words in English, you can uh, rest assured that those are all the same word in Greek. Okay, it's it's dikaiosune or some variation thereof. Um, which we translate as justice, justification, or righteousness. Now, during the Reformation, what's going on in the culture in Europe is uh, what's known as the early modern period of law, right? So the way that uh, the legal system and the codes and and property laws and the way we think about uh, individualism that's coming out of philosophy, this is all being driven by philosophical thought, Ultimately, which would give rise to really uh, John Locke and you know some political theory that gave rise to the United States, right? So we find you know, we we find a lot of the way we think rooted in this period, but it's 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 very legal in the way that we think legal, right? So we we are talking about forensic categories, right? And so the reformers, as they come to the words justice, righteousness, and they're reading Paul talking about Jesus making us righteous. Um, they are coming to this with a legal lens, almost exclusively, right? And so w- what we say is it's a forensic category. So when Paul's talking about 
Jesus making us righteous. Uh, there's this, this thing called imputed righteousness in which Jesus's category or status of being righteous, blameless, is imputed or given to us as humans because of what's on the cross and because of the faith that we have. The faith is going to be the second discussion we have here, so hang on to that one. The problem here is that uh, justification, righteousness, is not simply a forensic category, right? So, a lot of the modern church, particularly in America, if you say, what does it mean to be righteous or what, it, what does it mean to act justly is to do the right thing. Like you have the law, you have the rules, and you follow the rules. And if you follow the rules, you are righteous, you are just, you are innocent, okay? Um, and if you break a law, you are therefore uh, guilty and you are not righteous. And that's true. And so I don't, I don't want to say that this is not true, but the problem is that it's an oversimplification, and it's too narrow. Because if we go back into uh, particularly the Old Testament, but even into the first century, for our purposes today, we're going to sort of lump those together. Let's go and just say we're going further back into the history of God's people. What we find, especially if we're studying uh, the words for uh, righteousness, there's this thing called the Septuagint, which uh, is the Greek word for 70. Um, and it, it is the translation of the Old Testament from Hebrew into Greek. And it gets its name because supposedly there were 70 translators who translated the Hebrew text into the Greek text. And when they got together, they magically had the identical translations. I don't know about that, but whatever, that's the name of it. And and if we go back and we look at where justification and righteousness are talked about, it's the same word, it's the same Greek word, right? So, that's where we're going. That's that's sort of the basis of our understanding. What, is the, what does the Bible say about righteousness? And as we go through the books of Isaiah, of you know the Psalms, of, of the prophets, prophetic literature in which God is speaking about righteousness, you understand very quickly from the context that righteousness has everything to do with relationships, okay? You can go out in the woods and live by yourself and be blameless. And therefore, in the, in the Reformed understanding, in this you know, 15th, 16th, 17th century um, and on, understanding of righteousness, you can be a righteous person by yourself. But that makes no sense um, in a more historic understanding because to be righteous is not simply to not transgress laws, but rather to uh, behave and act in accordance with the obligations and duties that you have in a covenantal relationship. So that's between people and also between people and God, right? So my relationship with you and my relationship with God, right? We enter into with relationships. So I have a covenantal relationship with my wife, right? To be righteous to my wife is to to meet the obligations of the covenant of the vows that I've given to her, right? So the relationship is foundational to the understanding of righteousness, right? It is it is to to act rightly towards another person. So it's not simply a legal thing. And so it is, if we think about this in terms of, you know, what Paul is saying in Romans, right? If if Jesus is righteous, it isn't simply that he was blameless, although he was, it is that he came to the earth and he lived in accordance with the covenant that God had placed 
um, between himself, between God's self and humanity, right? And so Jesus met all of the obligations. He loved God properly. He loved the people properly. And that's what it means to be righteous. And it is his sacrifice. It is, it is his work on the cross, not simply that wipes our slate clean in a forensic or legal sense, right? So we are not simply righteous in terms of just being deemed innocent, we are actually made righteous. That means we are given the power by which we and through which we can now live rightly. We can now meet the obligations because of what God has done, right? And so it's a much broader category or understanding of righteousness that simply going back to the 500 years to the Reformation, we completely miss, right? It, it, it becomes about a status not a way of being. And righteousness, maybe that's a really good way, the best way of saying it. Righteousness is not about a a legal status, but rather a type of being in the world, right? How are we thinking, acting, speaking in relationship to God and to the world around us, the people around us, right? And again, we go back to the fact that Jesus says all of the scriptures hangs on the two principles, the two commandments, to love God and to love others as yourself, right? It's all about relationship. And so when we talk about righteousness, if we don't understand it's first and foremost about relationship, we miss it, right? And and for churches that, that see themselves uh, as going back to the Reformation period and all of the theology as, as if somehow in the five, you know, 500 years ago, all of a sudden we all got it right and, and, and nothing's developed before that and nothing developed after that that was, that was any good, right? That, that's in some ways kind of arrogant and, and misguided, right? Why would you think that? But if we only go back that far, then we're left with this idea of justification uh, and righteousness, um, which, which is, is misguided. It is poor. It is, it is only a piece of what it means, right? And if we think about God's justice in the Old Testament, we got to remember that God's justice is not retributive, meaning it's not punishment. It's not, to be just is not to get what you deserve, right? To be just in the Old Testament was always, to, to, to bring about God's justice was always to make things right, to look at the world and see what was broken, right? And in relationship, okay, you screwed up, you transgressed it, you, you stepped out of line, right? In a, in a marriage relationship, right? You, you treated your spouse badly, right? You said something wrong. Uh, you committed adultery. What is just? Getting what you deserve? No. For God, it is looking at that and saying, okay, how do we make this right? How do we heal this, right? So God's justice is restorative, not retributive, right? It, it looks at the world and says, how do I restore this? Because that's God's project. Remember, that's what he's after. The world gets broken in the garden, and he looks at the world and says, I love this. How am I going to fix it, right? And that's the entire history of the Old Testament and the New Testament is how God acts justly in the world to restore his good creation, not to punish it. All right, so the next one I wanted to talk about is faith, because this gets into this discussion. Again, uh, sort of a reformed Calvinistic or Lutheran understanding of faith, in which uh, we enter into this conversation of faith versus works. Um, and so we'll talk a little bit about works also. But, you know, we have, and, and they had, we have inherited out, out of the Reformation this uh, concept of faith. Uh, which is simply uh, mental as- assent or acceptance to, of a proposition, right? So to believe in Jesus is simply to accept the proposition that Jesus is God's son, that he died for our sins, right? And they will go on and say that it is faith, not works. It is the belief in Jesus, not 
the act of, they would even say it's not the act of believing, right? The faith ultimately is a gift from God because if it's something you do, if you're believing, then it's a work. It's something you're doing. And Paul says we are justified by faith and not works, right? Again, this doesn't take into account any historical understanding of either faith or works, right? It doesn't recognize what Paul means by works. It doesn't recognize what the, the, the connotation and the meaning that the word faith has, right? So faith, the, the Greek word pistis, and the, we're going to talk about works, which is ergon in Greek, but pistis means faith, right? But it always has with the, the understanding that that belief or that conviction, that trust works itself out in works, right? Or obedience, as Paul will say it. Like in the, in the introduction, in the, the fourth verse, Romans 1, 4, he talks about um, the obedience of faith, right? And, and that, that's what we call a, a genitive of source. And again, there's some debate here, but most scholars will agree that uh, it's a genitive of source, which what it means is that the faith is the source or the fountain that springs forth the obedience, right? So, you cannot have faith and not have action as a result. And this is why Paul does not disagree with James, right? There's in the history, especially coming out of the Reformation, you have this problem if you if you think faith is simply just a mental assent and not connected in any way to an action, that that runs counter and, and contradictory to, to James, who's going to say, you can't have faith without works, that faith without works is dead, he says, right? And that runs afoul and, and, and is contradictory to what the Reformers are saying about you know, sola fide, faith alone, it's only by faith, right, is not dependent upon what you do at all, right? That is a complete misunderstanding of what it means to have faith. When the first century writers, when Paul and others, and, and this is true of the, all, all the extant literature, when we go and we find find this, right, find this word faith, faith works itself out. Faith is a belief that necessarily has an act. Um, I mean, Paul himself is going to talk about the faith of Abraham, and you go back and read that story, it's a it's an act. It's it's Abraham believing what God said and then acting and going and doing and, and leaving his family and going to this new land and doing what God calls him. It it is the the, the faithful action, right? Is is the acts that spring forth from the belief that cause him to be reckoned righteous. Right? And so what does that what does that have to do with works? Here again, if if we take only a 500-year window, and we think about the word works, we end up with an action. A work is an action. But what Paul's actually talking about is a work of the law, right? He's having this this massive debate in Romans. He has it in Galatians. He has it all over the place that the obligations under the law, the work of the law is not what justifies us. It is the work of faith, right? It is the work. It is the faith of Jesus Christ. It is not simply Jesus believing in God. Jesus is God, right? Like that, that's almost a tautology that he would believe in God, right? It is his faithful action, his righteous action that, that justifies him, that makes him righteous, and that in turn justify us, right? It, there have to be actions, right? It, it it's all comes down to our actions. In fact, Jesus says, right? Like if, if you don't do what I say, forget it. James says even the even the demons believe and they shudder. That's the, the point that, that James is making. Like your faith must work out in action, right? Faith is a work. Faith is an action. It has to be, or it's meaningless. It's nothing. 
And the problem with the churches, which was the, the conversation that I was having with these folks this weekend, is that churches that don't sit rooted historically miss it, right? That they're not going back far enough to understand what we're talking about here because they simply go back to the Reformation and, or, you know, as I said, with some other churches, they go back 50 years, 100 years, 150 years um, in sort of the American church and, and they get stuck in that theology without realizing how we got there. And, and when you go back and you look at the, the breadth and the development of theological thought over history, and, and I've, I've said before, I don't know here or not, but I learned more in my church history classes about theology and what we're talking about here than I ever did in an actual theology course. Because you begin to see wh- why we think what we think, how we got there. You can look back at the Reformation and say, okay, well, this is why you thought what you thought, right? You're, you're reacting to terrible abuses in the church, and you need to reform it. But in, in, in large measure, if the pendulum had swung one way, uh, we're, we're moving it back the other direction, but we go way too far, right? And in retrospect, we can, we can see that. And, and truth be told, you know, we're going to get a couple hundred years down the road, and my guess is people that time are going to be looking back with some distance and some objectivity about what the church is saying today, and, and they're going to have the same conversation. Oh, they were saying this because this was the popular thought. Um, this is the lens through which they're, they're working, and we can't escape that. But we can mitigate it by being historic, by recognizing that God has been working through faithful people, men and women who love Jesus, who have been thinking deeply and, and debating and having conversations that matter. It's not like we're just you know brilliant 21st century people and we know things and think better than they did back then. Like those are intelligent people, right? Um, and they've been thinking deeply about these problems and the, these questions, and we have to recognize that. Again, doesn't mean we agree with everything that was said. There's some crazy stuff in, especially in the medieval church. So you don't have to buy it hook, line, and sinker, but it's important to understand how we got where we got. And so when we think about what we're talking about, if, if we're looking at churches that are not rooted historically, that don't talk about Athanasius and Augustine and Aquinas and all of these brilliant, brilliant minds of the early church um, and, and the medieval church. And, um, you know, just because they are big C Catholic thinkers, like, so what? It's the church. Before the Reformation, that was the church. And that was the Western church. There's a whole other Eastern church, you know, what we call the Orthodox church, uh, which most people don't even want to touch, but that's the other half of the church. And we need to be wrestling with the ideas that come out of there in order to have a full understanding of the witness of God through his church throughout time to really understand or have any chance of what's going on. So we need to be humble about what we're saying, how we're saying it. We need to not think that we think better than they did 2,000 years ago. Uh, We think different and we have a different lens, but we need to uh, try to appreciate what was being said because if we don't, as we've talked about today, we run the risk, a real risk, of not only missing out on a lot of meaning, but actually misunderstanding and getting it wrong. If you haven't already, subscribe to the show. Drop a comment, drop a a review. If you enjoy it, you get something out of it, share it with somebody. See you next time.